my Father. I ask you, in the name of your risen Son, to send your Spirit into this assembly so that as we look at your Word, that the living presence of the risen Jesus would meet us so that our hearts would burn within us. It's in his precious and holy name that I ask. Amen. You may be seated. Christ is risen. However you want to respond to that, as long as there's joy in it. I apologize if you've heard me tell this before, but it just seems all too appropriate since it's Easter. Uh, there was a, a, a couple who took care of the wife's uh, mother who was aging, and um, the, the husband and uh, the mother-in-law did not have the greatest relationship. Let's just say that she liked to point out his imperfections at just about every point. Uh, of his life. And so anyway, they were going on a trip to the Holy Land, but she was kind of ill and they needed to keep her close by so they could take care of her. So they took her with uh, them to Jerusalem. And um, then she died. And the husband was uh, having a word with the undertaker who told him, well, there's, there's one of two things you could do. You can um, have your mother-in-law buried right here in the Holy Land for, for $50. Or you can have her shipped all the way back to the United States where you're from and it'll cost you about five grand. And the husband said, all right, give me a day. I need to think about this. Okay, so then he comes back to him the next morning and he says, uh, you know, I thought about it. I think we're just going to have her shipped back to the U.S. And uh, he says, okay. He goes, I got to ask you, you know, you're in the Holy Land. You could have her buried in this sacred place for $50 and you're going to pay five thousand to have her brought all the way back to the u.s and uh you know the guy said you know i just i heard that about two thousand years ago uh, there was a man who died here and three days later uh, he was raised back to life and uh, i just can't take those kind of chances <laughs> now if you came here with your mother-in-law today you need to give her a kiss right now and tell her that you love her but <laughs> just too appropriate for easter morning the resurrection of Jesus. Why do we make such a big deal out of it? There are literally millions upon millions of Christians across the face of the globe right now celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And I would like to suggest that it's because the meaning of life actually depends on it. It, it claims that there is hope beyond physical death. That's the claim of the resurrection. And either the resurrection happened or it didn't. Christianity doesn't believe that the resurrection is like a spiritual thing. We believe it was really a historical event that happened. So either it really did happen in, in actual history or it just did not. It has to be one of those two things. So you could say that a whole lot hinges on whether or not Jesus was really raised from the dead. Because if some guy pulls off his own death and resurrection, you, you, you have to start paying attention to the things that he taught and the things that he did and the things that he said. Right? Has anybody pulled off their own death and resurrection yet? Okay. You see, if the resurrection is true, if, if it really happened, then, then your life is, is intricately and profoundly wrapped up with the implications. There, there's just no getting around that. 
It either happened or it didn't. C.S. Lewis, this is why he famously said, Christianity, if false, is of absolutely no importance at all. But if true, it is of infinite importance. He said, the one thing that it cannot be is moderately important. There are profound implications. So I'd like to look at uh, Scripture today, the Gospel of Mark. Now, I want to say something about Mark's gospel just, just for a minute, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not here to give a historical lecture to try to defend the historicity of the Bible or even the resurrection so much today. But um, what we know about Mark, who wrote this gospel that we have as a somewhat of a biography of Jesus' life, and we're at the very end of it here with the resurrection scene, what we know about Mark is that at the time of his writing, it was widely known um, that, that when Mark authored this gospel, that he was, he was writing from the perspective of the Apostle Peter, who was a, a first-hand eyewitness of all that Jesus said and did, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And we know that because outside of the Bible itself, there are a numerous uh, literary resources from that period in history that acclaim that Mark, they, scholars think it was a man named John Mark, he was a friend of Peter's, and so he would follow him around and listen to his preaching and record things, and he would listen to Peter tell the details about Jesus' life and teaching, and so he would meet with Peter and try to get all the details that he didn't get if Peter was speaking too fast and write them down as accurately he was, as, he was, uh, as he could. Now, in the ancient world, this, this was called an amanuensis. Now, this is the most important part of the sermon that you say this with me. Amanuensis. Okay, we can move on. But it just means a scribe. Okay, it just means a scribe. But there's just a little tidbit of history there so you get some context for uh, the account that we're reading from uh, this morning. So if you would look at chapter 16 in your bulletin or if you brought your Bible along, we're in Mark 16 this morning. I'm so much more interested in, in this morning than us uh, learning information or facts or hearing arguments about whether or not the resurrection happened. I'm more interested in actually just encountering the person of Jesus because he's way more interesting than any arguments that I could make about him. And I believe that he's here and I believe that when we dig into his word and look at who he is, we'll have an encounter with him. I know some of you want to say amen and you're trying to be nice because there's visitors here with us today, but you can say amen. Let's, let's encounter Jesus. So it tells us that when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, these were some women that had followed Jesus around during his life and ministry and been ministered to by him. Uh, they, they bought spices so that they would go and anoint Jesus's body. It was a burial custom. And then Mark tells us in verse two, and this is really the only verse we're going to look at from Mark's gospel. He says, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. Why do I emphasize that and why is it an important detail? Mark includes this detail. It's important that it was the first day of the week. And here's why. Mark is wanting us to think back actually to the very first pages of the Bible when Genesis, the book of Genesis, tells us that in the beginning, God created. And then what happened on the very first day? It tells us that God was hovering over the chaos and the darkness, and he began to bring order and beauty and meaning into the world. And he began to construct this beautiful world that he called good, this creation that he called good. But on the first day of the week, the beginning of creation, God said, let there be light. And he spoke light into darkness. So Mark, the reason why he's letting us know and emphasizing it's the first day of the week is to say what's happening right now, again, is God is creating something. There is a new creation, if you will. God is saying, let there be light once again. 
so that the light of Jesus will pierce the darkness of the world in which he came to save. So, so there's meaning there even in these little details. And Mark is saying in the resurrection, God is doing it again. He's saying, let there be light in the person of Jesus. Now, we have to back up a little bit because the resurrection, it doesn't just stand alone as a historic event that you can kind of believe or not believe. It's a part of a bigger story. And so I want to back up actually to those early days of creation and kind of quickly take us through the through the story so that the resurrection can fit in the right context that it is a part of. So you go back to those early pages of Genesis when God creates the world and within a few days humans muck it up as the English say. It's just within with, within a few pages of the Bible, God says, look, I've created you. I've given you dominion over this. I want you to re- represent me and multiply and be blessed and enjoy this creation that I've made for you. Live in my presence. You have my blessing. Uh, multiply all of that. And he says, but there's one thing. I don't want you to partake of this tree because what this tree symbolizes is the knowledge of good and evil that only I should have. Okay. But then, out of nowhere, there's this strange, mysterious serpentine figure in the garden who's some kind of dark spiritual creature who lures them in to disobey the voice of God. So what we see happening in Genesis is that somehow in the spiritual realm, there's already a rebellion that's happened. And the serpent just represents a figure who's in rebellion against God who wants to lure humanity into the same rebellion. And they fall for it. Like, God, I gave you one rule. I gave you one rule, and they broke it, okay? So, enter the mess of a world that is broken by sin and the power of sin and the enemy, okay? But you, God really quickly, you see, if you read through the, the first, like, 12 chapters of Genesis, you see who God is. You see that God is not going to just let this thing go and spin out of control. He's actually going to do something about it, and he's going to pursue human beings, even though they have turned their back on him and said, thanks, but no thanks, we're going to do it our own way. And he begins to pursue them. He calls a man named Abraham, and he says, Abraham, you're righteous. Your descendants are going to be my people. And from your descendants and your family, who we call the Israelites, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. I'm going to reach all the nations of the world with my, with a blessing, with blessing. And if you know the story, um, it is one miserable failure after another. These people, the Israelites, they, they just, they, they can't get it together. They can't follow God's covenant laws and they fail and they fail and they fail and they fail to rightly represent him to the world because they were supposed to draw people to God, the true God through, through their life and their witness and their way of life, which was, which was unique. But they just failed. And, and what you find, what you realize is like there's a deeper problem um, other than just like following laws and not following laws. Human beings, their hearts are actually really broken and messed up. They can't follow God on their own. And we see that with the nation of Israel. And so the, the, that's all in the story of the Old Testament. And then it ends... And it's kind of like, hmm, what's going to happen? But there was all these promises about this king figure, this anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means, who was going to come and he was going to restore Israel, God's people, to, 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 to who they were actually really supposed to be. But the, end, the Old Testament ends on kind of a note of despair, but also like whispers of hope. And then we get to... The Gospels, which is where we're at today in Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the accounts of Jesus' life. And suddenly, um, this Jesus, this, this Nazarene, this guy from this sort of, it's like a little small town. There was trash heaps there. There was like, it was like, it was just not a, it was not a prestigious place. And he's a carpenter. 
and he grows up, and by the time he's about 30, he, he goes public with his ministry. And a man named John the Baptist, who's actually his cousin, baptizes him in water, not because he needs to be forgiven of sin, but because he wants to identify with humanity as the one sinless one. And he comes out, and the Spirit of God descends on him in the form of a dove and empowers him as a human being to carry out the ministry that God wants him to carry out to show the world who God is. And here's, I want to say a little bit about his message and his ministry. So Jesus, the center of his message was something, an idea called the kingdom of God, which really just means God's reign, God's reign over people, over their hearts, over the world, over creation, God's good royal reign. And he went around and one of the first things that he says when he goes to his public ministry is the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I want everybody to say good news. Let's say it together. Good news. The gospel is good news. The message of Jesus is good news. It's really good news. But in other words, what he was saying was God is taking the world back to himself. Remember the whole Adam and Eve and the serpent thing? God gave them authority over the world to run it in a good and righteous way and they took the keys and they gave them over to Satan by their sin. That's really what happened. And when God, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, he's saying God is taking the right, his right ownership back of the world, his right ownership of the world back. He's saying um, he, he's reigning over the world again through me. That's what Jesus is saying. Um, he's rescuing it from the power of the evil one. But he, when he says repent, what he means by that? It means you have to change the way that you're thinking and you're living and look towards me and give your life to me and follow me. That's what it means to repent. Now, let me just say as, a, as an aside, nobody says these kinds of things unless they are a psychotic lunatic or they're telling the truth. You, you can't say God is coming to reign in the world through me and you can't go around proclaiming to people your sins are forgiven, which is what Jesus did, unless you're either a lunatic who should be in the asylum for the rest of your life or you're telling the truth. Okay. So um, Jesus not only spoke this message, he lived a life as a flesh and blood human being. We Christians, we believe he's 100% God, but he set all of his glory and his splendor aside as God, and he willfully took on human flesh to be 100% human and lived under the power of God's Spirit. And this is what he did. He proclaimed this message of the kingdom that people could be set free from the power of sin and brokenness, and then he demonstrated it. 40% of the gospel narratives are Jesus healing people and casting out evil spirits that are tormenting them. 40%. So he demonstrated what the kingdom of God looked like. He demonstrated the reality of God's kingdom reign through setting people free from their bondage to sickness, to sin, to addiction, to, to death. He raised people up from death, the dead. Now here's an interesting thing about Jesus, okay? Because I know if you're new to being at an Anglican service or an Episcopal service and you see all of the ornate vestments and you think this must be about being high and holy and, and, and polished and all the things. These are just, these are just meant to draw our attention to the beauty of God, right? Jesus didn't walk around hanging out with the high and holy types. In fact, he 
he kind of gravitated to the opposite. He was often chided by religious folks. It's always the religious people who are the quickest to jump on anybody who is not like them, right? Let's just, sometimes we all need to own that up. But he didn't hang out with holy types. He was, he was always being uh, chided because he shared table fellowship with despised tax collectors who were crooked and ripped people off. He would eat dinner with them. Prostitutes had, who had problems with demons and like oppression in their life. With, with all kinds and manner of sinner and broken person. And Jesus would break bread with them over a table and share a meal with them. Which in the ancient world was a, was a, a symbolic act of friendship and, and familial unity. It was a really big deal. So you can see why the high and holy types were like, what does this guy think he's doing? He's proclaiming that people are forgiven of their sins. Who does he think he is? And he's going here and he's dining with sinners. Who does this guy think he is? Friends. That's who God is. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Some of us can bring, bring very distorted images of who God the Father is into the church this morning. Whether it's based on our past or something we heard on the internet or in a classroom or whatever. We have very distorted images of who God the Father is. And Jesus said to his disciples, he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He said, all that I do... I I only do what I see my Father doing. The Bible says He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. And so if you want to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus, which is really kind of mind-blowing because He actually gravitated towards broken people and brought healing and transformation into their lives. It's amazing. It's amazing. God comes to us when we're at our worst, not when we're at our best. Not when we're all cleaned up. He comes to us when we're at our worst and most desperate and most addicted and most far from Him and most broken and God walks into the room and sits at the table with us. That's who God is. Peter said this in the, uh, the reading that we had a moment ago from the New Testament. This, it was in Acts chapter 10. Peter was preaching after um, Jesus had been raised from the dead. And Peter said... God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. He went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. God wants to set people free. God wants to set you free. He wants you to live in freedom and in joy and in wholeness. And Jesus demonstrated it in flesh and blood for three years while he walked the earth. Matthew chapter 9, there's this beautiful vignette of, of Jesus and he's, there's the multitudes are gathering around. And this is one of my favorite uh, things that the gospel writers say about Jesus. It says this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. His compassion was like no other. The word that's used in the Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in, it means to be moved in your gut. 
He felt compassion when he saw broken people. He wanted to bring healing into their life. He wanted to shepherd them. But he was a threat. He was a threat to the religious and political establishment. He aggravated people by showing them that hiding under their lives, under the surface of their lives of good deeds, were self-seeking hearts that did not, in truth, belong to God. Jesus says in John chapter 7, the world has hated me because I speak to it of its sin. He always spoke a message that dealt with our hearts. That's why it is not possible to proclaim the name of Jesus in word, but not live it out in walking hand in hand with him every day. There's no such thing. Jesus himself says, many, many will call me Lord, Lord, but they will not live in the way that I teach. So you have, when, you, when we confess him, it actually deals with the stuff in our hearts. Jesus wants to deal with the stuff that's going in the deepest places of our hearts that nobody else but you know about. And he wants to do something about it. Something good. But he aggravated the system. So they snuffed out his life. We walk, we walk through the um, Passion reading on Good Friday. And if you just listen to it and you take it in, you, you, and you look at the um, political, the judicial process that he went through when he was on trial. So corrupt. So full of scheming and evil and manipulation and lies. The sinless one. Perfect in purity. Never looked at a woman with lust. Never stole. Never said something that tried to make himself look good in a way that was deceptive. Pure. Gentle as a lamb. Completely innocent. Falsely accused. Betrayed. All of his friends left him and abandoned him because they were afraid. Is tried and tortured by the Romans, which if you know anything about that in the ancient world, is not a pretty sight. And then he was put on a tree. And it looked like defeat. His own followers thought it was. But what was actually happening when he hung there was that our sin was being dealt with. The power of sin in the world, that, that power that that keeps you trying to find your way in life in any way but to humble yourself and turn to God and say, I need you. He was breaking that power so that you could have life in the presence of God. It looked like defeat, but it was actually victory. His throne was a cross made of wood from trees. And the kingdom that he proclaimed was actually shining forth and he was enthroned upon his throne except it looked like that because God went to the lowest depths of our mess and our brokenness to save us out of it, to save us right here where we are in it. The Bible says this, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sin. 
It was before you ever had a thought about God or ever gave him a moment of attention that he looked upon you and he loved you. And he said, I don't want them to stay under the power of sin. So I'm going to send my son to bear the punishment so that justice will be done once and for all and that those who believe in him will receive life in his name. They will be not guilty. They will be proclaimed righteous. They will become my sons and daughters and I will bring them back into my presence where I created them to live. So the resurrection, they're moseying along on the first day of the week, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise. I looked out the window this morning and there was pink and orange and the sun was coming up. I said, hallelujah, I've been set free. God was saying, again, let there be light. And there was light. It was a vindication of everything Jesus said and did. I mentioned that earlier, didn't I? I said the resurrection either happened or it didn't. And if it happened, it's a vindication of everything that he said and did. It shows us that it's true. And we actually have to take him at his word. It was the victory over your sin. It was the victory over my sin. It was the victory over your addiction. It was the victory over your captivity. It was the victory over your brokenness, your sadness, your depression, and your longing and your separation from the presence of God. He triumphed over it. But to make it yours, you have to receive it. You have to desire it and act. You see, the resurrection of Jesus, it provokes an inner crisis for all of us. Jesus was the most tender, gentle, compassionate person to walk the earth. But he also said things like this from our gospel today. Whoever believes, whoever does not believe will be condemned. Ultimately, in the end. Now, it's not because he's mean or he was having a bad day. My gosh, it was the day of his resurrection. He was having the greatest day. But he was speaking an eternal truth. There's no one else who's come to rescue you from your sin. There's no one else who lived a perfect, pure life on your behalf in the presence of God. And there's no one else who loved you in such a way that they would lay down their own life for you. And so, what he's saying is that if you reject me, you're making a decision to stay under sin's power. The Bible says that God is patient and it says he desires that no one would perish but all would come to a knowledge of the truth. His heart is a father's heart for children who have walked away from him. And it burns with compassion. Jesus told a story, a parable, about a son. It's a symbolic kind of story. He wanted to demonstrate the heart of God for people. 
and he told this story about a son who said to his dad, you know what? I want my inheritance right now. Basically, it's like saying, I wish you were dead. And the father gave him his money. He said, okay, my son. He left. He wandered off. It was like uh, living in Las Vegas for a couple years, burn all his money up on women and drink. Was working in a pig field, in a, working with the pigs. Dirty and muck and mire, right? It's a picture of being covered in sin. And he says he comes to his senses after he gets to this low point and he says, I can't believe I've done this. I can't believe I've, I've, I've come. I, this is where I am. I'm living away from home, from my father who cared for me, who loved me. And it says, I'm going to go home to my father and say, I've sinned against you and all of heaven. Will you forgive me? And he's making his way back towards the father's house. And Jesus says this, and I think he says this specifically because he wants us to see something about the father heart of God. He says, while he was a long way off, the father had compassion on him and ran to him and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And he said, we're having a barbecue. Get, <laughs> literally, he said, go, go, go kill a calf. We're having a barbecue. And he said, bring me my best robe and my best ring and my best sandals. And he put a robe around him. He put a ring on his finger. He put sandals on him. And he said, let's celebrate. My son who was lost is now found and he's home. That's the father in heaven who looks down upon us today. It's what he's like. I wandered in sin and trying to find my way without him for 25 years. Drugs. I had to smoke marijuana first thing in the morning just to feel something. Alcohol, all of it, partying, festivals. My life was a big party, empty. And I heard this voice, not audibly, just saying gently, you're on the wrong path. No, you are. You need to come home. I surrendered, fought for a long time, ran for a long time. You see, here's the good news. Jesus proclaimed good news. The good news is that the power of the cross, which is where your sins were paid for, and the power of resurrection, which is the power of new life to to come out from under the power of those sins, it's available to you today. That's the good news. It's what we celebrate. Jesus... said, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast away. Anyone who comes to me, I will never cast away. But, 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 but Jesus, <laughs> you don't know how far I am from you. I don't even really have much desire for you, really. Anyone who comes to me, I'll never cast away. But Jesus, you, you don't know what I did. You don't know what I did last weekend. It's just the darkness of it. Nobody knows. Anyone who comes to me, I will in no way cast you out. But Jesus, I don't know about if I can do this. I don't know if I can be good and follow your teachings. I don't know if I can do that. Come to me. Come to me. I'll clean your wounds. I'll put healing balm where you're hurting. I'll forgive everything. I paid for it. I bore it on the tree. 
There was a pastor um, who I heard about asked his congregation on Easter Sunday, why do you think the angel rolled away the stone? And of course everybody said, so Jesus could come out. And he said, no, so that people could go in. The resurrection happened. It happened so that you could come home to the Father by leaving your old life in the tomb and rising to new life in Christ. There's one condition. One condition. These are Jesus' own words. Come to me. All you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Some of you are carrying heavy burdens. Sin, addiction, the effects of abuse, broken family relationships, all of the stuff that comes with the mess of humanity. The fundamental burden that we all carry is our need, a profound need to live in the presence of God, to know Him as our Father, to know His blessing, His love, His security, the meaning, the purpose that He has for our lives, to be able to live there joyfully without guilt and shame. And Jesus says, come to me. He's gentle. He's lowly. But here's the thing. You have to give him all. Jesus is not interested in just giving us a heartfelt experience on Easter Sunday. He wants our lives. Our lives in exchange for his. And his, I've found, is so much better. He said this, anyone who wants to save their life will end up losing it. But those who lose their lives for my sake will gain eternal life. You will walk into a friendship with him that will never end because he was raised from the dead. And when he did that, when that happened, death lost its power over those who put their trust in him. A lot hinges on the resurrection that we celebrate today. Jay, would you minister to the Lord for us just just for a moment? Um, I, I believe that God wants to bring sons and daughters home today. I believe that there's people uh, in, in these pews this morning who are hurting and who feel a burning in their heart that they might not be close to his heart like they need to be. Maybe you once were. And you know right now that you're not. Maybe you never have known the embrace of the Father through his Son. Maybe you're dealing with addiction in your life and you're fighting it for a long time. And you have a heart that is burning right now. That's Jesus. And you're weighing the cost 
following him. The world, the culture hates Christians. Jesus said they would. And you have to give him everything. It's costly. Jesus said, count the cost. But you gain everything in return. Eternal life. His spirit will come and make his home in you. Today. And you'll be born anew. A new creature. A new creation. And I believe that God wants to bring the resurrection of power, the resurrection power of Jesus into this room today. And so if for any reason, uh, right now, your heart is burning within you because of what you've heard today, I want you to just stand. I want you to stand courageously. You can't be ashamed of Jesus. I want you to stand courageously as as an act of recognition that you need him. You're not going to be embarrassed. The people in this congregation are here to support you and encourage you. And if you know you need to come from where you are closer to Jesus. I want you to stand. We're going to do something together. I'm not going to embarrass you. But I want you to stand up. If you want to walk out of those doors today knowing that you're following Him and that you're new and that you're made new. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would send your precious Holy Spirit this place this morning, Lord, and that the people that are hearing your voice right now would respond to you, Lord, knowing that you gave everything so that they could live and be free. Make your love known in this room today to those, Lord, who know that they've confessed you by name but actually haven't new of your spirit help us Lord to step forward I want everybody to stand we'll do it like this Bible says if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved eternally saved, made whole if you confess with your lips so we we do something um, called the Apostles Creed which is um, it's a historical Statement of faith. And if you've never uh, confessed Jesus as Lord, and you know that you need to today, or maybe you need to recommit your life to him, we're going to say this together, but we're going to say it from the heart. We're not, we're not just saying words here. It's in your bulletin. And we're going we're gonna to declare this together. Now, for, for those of you who may be sensing the voice of the Lord calling you, you can say this with the rest of us. But when you say it, lock eyes with Jesus and say it with your heart. So let's do this together. 